So we are in Hebrews 3. If you want to flip open to there. We'll also get to Numbers 12 and Psalm 95. Those will be the three places we spend the most time in today, uh, with our focus being on Hebrews 3. So that was Numbers 12 and Psalm 95. If you've got one of those fancy Bibles with more than one ribbon in it, um, you can mark that. Uh, As you're getting there, uh, to kind of review where we've gone so far, uh, we've talked about um, the Son of God as one who is fully divine. Uh, He is fully God. He is creator, sustainer. Uh, And yet there is this move of of descent to humanity as he takes on full humanness. Uh, And the Hebrew author also looks forward to that ascent um, back to uh, the glory of God. And this path of of descent, and particularly the path back up to ascent, uh, that Christ, fully God, fully human, is made perfect through suffering. So the pioneer of our faith, we see uh, is kind of the pioneer of faithfulness as well. So uh, the Hebrew author is setting us up for this, and we've seen the ethics that flow from that. Uh, He moved on, the author moves on from this, uh, to talking about how the Son is superior to the angels, uh, by which he's either pointing out that uh, he's he's drawing on the tradition that the law comes, was mediated through angels, and he's saying Son of God is even superior to the law, or perhaps he's saying, uh, since angels can be referred to as sons of God, he's saying, look, this Son of God is far superior to those sons of God. Those are lowercase s, sons of God. This is capital S. This is the creator, sustainer. Those are more like messengers. We need a couple seats. Yeah, if we got... <coughs> we'll wait on <laughs> Yes. Um, we also have seen, as kind of mentioned, that Jesus is regarded as, as the truly human one. Uh, he, is, he is not only representative of, of who God is, so we get a picture of God, but we get a representative of, of who we are meant to be. And so that same trajectory of His perfection is the invitation for us to follow this pioneer as we seek to be perfected through faithfulness, through trial. And then we come uh, right before chapter 3, which we're going to get into. Let me read so you have some context. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he also shared the same things in the same way. He did this to destroy the one who holds the power over death, the devil, by dying. He set free those who were held in slavery their entire lives by their fear of death. Of course, he isn't trying to help angels, but rather he's helping Abraham's descendants. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way. This was so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in things relating to God in order to wipe away the sins of the people. He's able to help those who are being tempted since he himself experienced suffering when he was tempted. So, Jesus became fully human in order to redeem those of us who are humans. And that redemption comes uh, through his willing and faithful suffering and death. Um... So then this prepares us as the great high priest. We talked about the paradox. He is the one not only who, um, uh, in a sense, offers the sacrifice of atonement, but he offers himself as a sacrifice. So he is both the high priest and the sacrifice. So hopefully that catches us up to where we are in chapter 3. So uh, let's start there in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, or yours might just say brothers, this is picking up on the language back in chapter 2, verse 17. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters. Who are you? You are his brothers and sisters, the one he was made like. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters who are partners in the heavenly calling, think about Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So, verse 1 is already setting some things up. He is apostle, one sent by God, and he is high priest, the one who mediates for humans. If you're catching that, he kind of goes, he, as apostle, is sent by God to humans, and as high priest, he represents humans before God. So, he is the true and great mediator. This is the one we want, right? One who can stand for us, and the one who can stand for God. He is the high priest of our confession. Uh, This idea of confession is going to be uh, crucial, I think, to the rest of this chapter. Uh, We might think of the confession as something like we see in Ephesians 4. Oh, the confession of, of we are one body, right? We are are united. Uh, There is one hope, this hope that things will be made right in Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Uh, That, um, maybe if I were to to hope you got one thing out of this, is what the Hebrew author is going to want us to see, is that that, uh, Jesus, that God, is more interested in the confession of our lives than the confession of our lips. So let me say that again. He's more interested in the confession of our lives than the confession of our lips. What we say matters, but true confession is how we live. The question is going to be, when you confess Jesus as Lord, when you confess that your hope is in this Christ, when you confess what He has done to give you access to the Father, when you confess that He has overcome death, and you confess that you are part of this body, what matters is that you live out that confession. Because when that takes root... In your heart, your life has changed. To claim that the world has been made right and will be fully made right in Christ, that's a game changer, right? To claim that Christ was resurrected and that so will we, it changes how we view things like death and suffering. To claim that Christ was made perfect by faithfulness through trials, means that it shapes what we think about our own life and our own call to faithfulness. It's about the confession of our lives, not merely the confession of our lips. Verse 2, Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him, just like Moses was faithful in God's house. So verse 2 is uh, kind of showing, uh, here's another angle in which Jesus is uh, in continuity, but superior to what happened in the Old Testament. Jesus is superior to angels. And now we're going to see uh, that Jesus is superior to Moses. So here might be where you flip over to Hebrews 12. And um, these next few verses are going to draw from Numbers 12 where Moses is the faithful servant of God's house. So, chapter 12 in Numbers, verse 1. When they were in some place, Hezeroth, Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses on account of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. A little redundant there. Uh, They said, Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard it. And then you have this great line. Now the man Moses was humble more so than anyone on earth. Um, except for maybe Moses is the author of this, as some think. You know, um, a little humble brag there. Uh, so, why, 
Why might he draw on this? Jesus has just been uh, put forward as the high priest. Okay? He is the high priest. This is what the Hebrew author says. And who do we have here in Numbers? But Aaron, the kind of godfather of high priests. And he's saying, who is this Moses? That Look who he's married. Aren't we just as good as Moses? And the resounding answer, as the high priest is comparing himself to Moses, is no. You are nowhere near close to who Moses is. So maybe the question is going to rise. Jesus is our high priest. How does he stack up to Moses? But first, let's read the rest of uh, Numbers 12. Verse 4, Immediately the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, You three go out to the meeting tent. So the three of them went out. And this, is, this is a bad time, right? They were probably thinking, Alright, uh, hammer's about to be dropped now. Then the Lord descended in a column of cloud, stood at the entrance of the tent, and called to Aaron and Miriam. The two of them came forward and he said, Listen to my words. If there is a prophet of the Lord among you, I make myself known to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams, but not with my servant Moses. He has proved to be reliable with all my household. This is the same language that's going to be borrowed in Hebrews. Not with my servant Moses. He has proved to be reliable with all my household. I speak with him face to face, visibly, not in riddles. He sees the Lord's form, so why aren't you afraid to criticize my servant Moses? Oh, Heron, you're the high priest. But you don't even begin to stack up to Moses. You don't understand the intimacy that Moses and I have. It's like he sees me face to face and he knows me. So you can imagine, Moses is this very revered character. And Hebrews thinks highly of Moses. So the question might be, okay, Moses and Jesus, level, maybe Moses superior. And uh, what the Hebrew author makes clear is Jesus' superiority. We'll go back to chapter 3 in Hebrews, verse 2. Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him just like Moses was faithful in God's house. But he deserves greater glory than Moses in the same way that the builder of the house deserves more honor than the house itself. Every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant in order to affirm the things that would be spoken later. But Jesus was faithful over God's house as a son. So there are kind of two moves he makes here. You have uh, Jesus as the Son is greater than Moses as the servant. That analogy makes some sense there. Keep in mind that he's drawing on a passage where Moses is a superior one. He is superior. He was faithful as servant over the household. And now Jesus is superior to Moses. He is son to Moses as servant. But it's like uh, the Hebrew author wants to, to show just how superior he is. And he says, just as the builder is greater than the house. It's like he's saying Moses is simply the servant, but Jesus, as we've seen, he is the one who is creating and sustaining. He's not simply son, but he is also part of the one who is building and sustaining. You're going to compare the son and the builder to the servant? You're out of your mind. Look at who this Jesus is. If you thought Moses was amazing... Jesus is much more so. If you thought Moses was close to God and saw him face to face, how about one who represents God in the flesh? So, Jesus is superior to Moses in those two ways. 
and more. Um, but we're already hopefully getting a sense of the continuity and the fulfillment that Jesus brings uh, to the Old Testament story. What Moses was pointing to, Jesus is in continuity with, but he is superior. He takes what Moses represented, which was good, and he makes it perfect. So verse 6, this is back in Hebrews 3, Jesus was faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if we hold on to the confidence and the pride that our hope gives us. We are His house if we hold on to the confidence and the pride that our hope gives us. Um, This is where I'm I'm getting at the idea of the confession of our lives. As we think about what it means to hold on to this confidence. What is this confidence? We see in Hebrews, part of this confidence, this hope we have, is that we have access to God. He's going to develop this later. That we have no fear of death. Uh, That we should have no shame of who Jesus is. If we believe that all things are being made right in Jesus, and this is our confidence, uh, then it changes our lives. This is our hope. Okay? Questions so far? Seeing? Yes? Uh, this is my first time here, so I don't know. I get the feeling you keep talking about superior, and he's superior to this and that. It, it sounds like there's a real agenda that is trying to be addressed here. And I'm curious, as you maybe have some insight, what's the real agenda that is really being addressed? Maybe it's a part of the culture or something? I don't know. Yeah, that's... We're not given enough background to know exactly what it is. It could be that there is a group of, um, of really serious Jewish converts who are, are struggling to, um, to make sense of how their faith... Um, how their Jewish faith now makes sense in light of Christianity. Or it could be a group of Gentiles and you have something like Galatians where you have some Jews coming in and saying you need to be more Jewish in order to really be part of this family. We're not quite sure, but, but in some ways he's trying to show... I mean, there's, there's two pieces to this. Jesus is superior, so the fullness is found in Jesus, but there is also continuity. You don't forget that old story. This is part of your story too. What God did uh, through Israel is now part of your background as well. So it's, it's bringing continuity and discontinuity, in a sense. Okay, so, Jesus is superior to angels. He is superior to Moses. And this language of uh, Moses and his house brings up Jesus and his house. So something like, Moses is to Israel as Jesus is to the new Israel, the church. So still continuity and some discontinuity. So it makes sense then uh, that the next move that the author is going to make is he's going to point to ancient Israel as a way of saying, think about your own present circumstances. So this is where we're going to be in chapter 3, and it's actually going to take us through chapter 4, but we'll, we'll get there more um, next Sunday. We'll just focus on chapter 3 right now. So he is, uh, verse 7, So as the Holy Spirit says, and then he's going to quote Psalm 95. So if you'll flip over to Psalm 95, I want you to see this in context as well.
So he quotes the second half of Psalm 95, but I think that the first half is implied, is understood, maybe uh, in this quote. So I'm going to start in verse 1. Come, let us sing out loud to the Lord. Let's raise a joyful shout to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before Him with thanks. Let's shout songs of joy to Him. The Lord is a great God, the great King over all other gods. The earth's depths are in His hands. The mountain heights belong to Him. The sea which He made is His, along with the dry ground which His own hands have formed. So God is Creator and Sustainer. Your response when you think about the Creator and Sustainer, verse 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our Maker. He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep in His hands. See, the proper response when you, when you meditate, when you think about who God is as Creator, as Sustainer, as Savior, as this is all claiming, and as one who holds you like sheep in His hands, the response is, come let us worship and bow down. The response is worship and awe and reverence. And, and I think this is in the background as we see this continuity. If this is the proper response to your Creator, Sustainer, and Savior, the one who holds you like sheep in His hands, how much more is this your response in light of what Jesus has done? Because we know Jesus is also Creator, Sustainer, the one who brings salvation, and the one who not only holds you like sheep in His hands, but the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for you. The response to God is, come let us worship and bow down. Let us respond with awe and reverence. How much more so with Jesus? And so here we're going to get to the part uh, where the Hebrew author quotes, but I think this is what we're supposed to bring in to this quote. We are the people of this pasture. If only, if only you would listen to His voice right now. Don't harden your hearts like you did at Meribah, like you did when you were at Massa in the wilderness. When your ancestors tested me and scrutinized me, even though they had already seen my acts. For forty years I despised that generation. I said, These people have twisted hearts. They don't know my ways. So in anger I swore, They will never enter my place of rest. When you recognize who God is, the response is worship and awe, and the confession that Yahweh is Lord is matched by the confession of your life. And in this, uh, this psalm, it's kind of interesting, we're, quoting, or we're reading Scripture, Hebrews, that's referring to Scripture, Psalms, that's referring to Scripture, Numbers 14. So if you want to skim Numbers 14, as we're seeing how all these are connected. This is the account where uh, Israel has, has been rescued. God has rescued them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They were enslaved. And God brought them freedom. He brought the plagues that we're all familiar with. So He rescues Israel. He sustains Israel. He does so in pretty clear and powerful ways. And He promises that He's going to bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. The promised land. The place of rest. And so, surely they can say, they can confess, Yahweh is our Savior. Yahweh is our Lord. But then testing comes because he's not simply interested in the confession of their lips but the confession of their lives 
And testing arrives in the form of whether or not they will trust him, the one they've seen do what he has done to mighty Egypt. Will they trust him to do the same in Canaan? And so they send out spies, and they check out the land, and lo and behold, it's good land, just like God said. But unfortunately, we can't do anything about it because the people are bigger and stronger than us. God is powerful. We confess that. But He can't deal with this. And so what God says is, you don't trust me. right? You faithless generation. Not faithless as in you don't have the confession of faith, but you faithless as in you don't live out this confession. You know what I've done. You know what I'm capable of. And yet you won't act on that faith. You won't be perfected through trials. Because that is the kind of people God is after. Those whose lives match their confession. And so, uh, they experienced uh, 40 years in the wilderness. And that generation died without ever entering the promised land. And then a new generation had a second chance. So, coming back to Hebrews 3. And I'm in verse 12. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that none of you have an evil, unfaithful heart that abandons the living God. This language of living God is helpful, right? It says, God, in God is life. To abandon God is to abandon life. Instead, encourage each other every day, as long as it's called today. This language of today Today is drawing on this idea that with the Messiah, a new day has dawned. Right? There was a day of God rescuing Israel, and there was an expected response, and now God has done something even more dramatic than what He did for Israel and Egypt. If you thought it was great and amazing how He delivered them from the slavery of Egypt, how much more so when He delivers you, His people, from the slavery of sin and death. Instead, encourage each other every day, as long as it's called today, so none of you become insensitive. God, insensitive to God because of sin's deception. We are partners or we are sharers with Christ, but only if we hold on to the confidence we had in the beginning until the end. This is that idea of, of faithfulness is so important. I think we've confused in the church this idea of saved by faith, uh, this word in Greek is pistis. It can mean faith or it can mean faithfulness. Faithfulness is the more, uh, I think, it captures better the idea that is at the heart of Scripture. Faithfulness matters. Yes, Jesus did all the work, and it's still by grace, but the expected response is faithfulness. To confess Jesus as Christ, that's not his last name, hopefully you know that. <clears throat> to call him Christ is to call him king. If you make a confession of someone as king, you're confessing yourself to be their subjects. You are my king, I am your subject, I will be faithful. Not, you are my king, 
I know that intellectually I'm going to be Lord of my life. The difference? To confess Him as King, to confess Him as Christ, is to confess yourself as subjects and Him as your Lord. And so faithfulness is the expected response. And so what the Hebrew author is warning them about uh, is it's growing calloused. I mean, we maybe have all experienced that honeymoon phase of Christianity. Life is good, it's easy, God's wonderful, He feels close. And then, uh, inevitably, uh, that passes. There's nothing wrong with that passing. I think that's part of the the growth into Christ-likeness. That changes, and the question is, will we maintain faithfulness through trial, through testing, and through difficulty? So he warns them against calloused hearts, becoming insensitive. Um, maybe we've all had some experience of this, um, uh, where uh, little justifications um, turn into larger justifications because we kind of, you know, it's kind of abrasive to our sensitive hearts at first. And then once you, once you, you know, experience that a few times, you build up a little tolerance. And so you can do a little more and it doesn't feel as wrong. And, and it just accumulates. He is warning them not uh, to become insensitive to this. My Achilles heel, or at least uh, the one that I'm most aware of, I used to think that I was, this is so, um, my own kind of uh, understanding of myself. I used to think I was patient. Then I got married and had kids and realized I was a conflict avoider. So when I say... <laughs> When I say this is my Achilles heel, what I'm saying is this is the one I'm most aware of. Uh, it might not actually be my main Achilles heel, but the one I'm most aware of for me is, is lust. And I understand the insensitivity that, that, that uh, builds with this. Right? You're, you justify in little small ways, driving down the road, and there's that you know, attractive lady in tight shorts and a sports bra, and you're like, a glance is okay. Right? I know it's objectifying, I know it shouldn't, but she shouldn't be out wearing that, so it's not a big deal. Right? These, these little, little justifications uh, in the things that particularly tempt us. And that compounds, right? You get used to doing that, and then it's like, well, I'm watching this show, something comes on, you know, it's, it's prime time, it's not that bad. If it was, they wouldn't have it on Channel 2. So I watch it. You know, and then what happens is I become insensitive to that. And then it just... Cycles and cycles and cycles. And so what he's warning them against is this kind of cycle, this downward spiral of callousness. Because it's hard and it's difficult, but this is part of being a people who confess Jesus as Lord, who confess with their lives that He is our King. It means you're faithful, even in temptation, even in trial. And as we've already talked about uh, on the first day, uh, one of the the temptations for the Hebrew uh, audience seems to be the temptation to maybe abandon some of their uh, confession and faithfulness because to confess Jesus as Christ is leading to some social and economic consequences in their culture. You confess one Lord? No, that's bad. You don't want to anger the gods. You confess multiple. You can confess him, but add some others onto there. And wait a second, this guy was crucified by the state. Why don't you just, you know, keep that to yourselves? But if you believe that God brought 
things to fullness through Christ. And that He didn't just reveal who God the Father is, but He revealed who you are called to be. And He has, through His own shed blood, freed you from sin and death. And you cannot walk around ashamed, even if that has economic and social consequences. Because that is a temptation. How is this going to, you know, hurt my wallet, my friendships, whatever else it might be? What is the cost of saying that perfection can come through trial and suffering? I can confess Jesus as Lord, but I don't want to follow him. He's the pioneer. He blazed the path, but, you know, I want to, um, you know, go straight to heaven without going on the same path. Isn't there like a detour? But, But what seems to constantly be the refrain in this is you follow the truly human one who through his humanity and his faithfulness was perfected and he entered into the glory of the Father. And the expectation is you follow your pioneer and perfecter. Even this language uh, in verse 14, we are partners. Think of this as something more robust than like business partners. We're sharers. Christ became what we are in order that we might become what he is. We are baptized into Christ. There is some sense in which we are sharing in the divine. Man. That doesn't cause us to worship and bow down. Then maybe we need to, to deal with some of the calluses. We need whatever the, uh, the equivalent of a, a pedicure is on our heart. Right? Shave some calluses off. We are sharers with Christ, but only if we hold on to the confidence. What's our confidence? That hope, that belief that things have been made right and will fully be made right in Christ. That we had in the beginning... Until the end. The language is arche telos. Who is Jesus? He is the pioneer, which has that arche language, and he is made perfect, telos, through suffering. Our beginning and end is in some way, in some measure, following Jesus' beginning and end. The journey motif flows throughout Hebrews, and if we come back to Israel's journey, they journeyed through the wilderness. They were tested. They had the opportunity to be made whole through faithfulness. And they chose callousness. The invitation is open for us to follow our pioneer and our perfecter or to follow ancient Israel. I mean, we're familiar with that Exodus and Numbers story. And probably many of us kind of slap our heads and think, how could they not have gone into the promised land? How could they not have trusted God? And yet what the Hebrew author is saying to us is, how could you not? They were freed from slavery through plagues. You were freed from the slavery of sin and death through the suffering and sacrifice of God in the flesh. He was resurrected. What are you worried about? What do you fear? Match the confession of your lips with the confession of your lives. So I, I sit in some ways uncomfortably with Hebrews. I can get up here and kind of talk passionately about it, but, but Hebrews, um, Hebrews, Hebrews makes me uncomfortable at times. I mean, there is good news, right? 
freed from sin and the slavery of death. We have this high priest who is able to empathize with us in our weakness. He is the merciful high priest. And I love it. Yes, sign me up. He's also the truly human one. The pioneer who calls us to faithfulness. Oh. And he expects us to hold on to that confession with our lives. And that makes me a little more uncomfortable. Only if we hold on. I can't read Hebrews and get behind um, uh, some at least Calvinistic notion of the perseverance of the saints. Which you might have heard as something like, once saved, always saved. I don't see that in Hebrews. I don't think this means we're supposed to sit around anxious all the time like, you know, I, uh, I lusted again, I guess I'm out. Until I ask for forgiveness, then I'm back in. You know, I don't think it's this, you know, you're kicked out of the family, you're readopted. You know, this this kind of thing. I don't think that's where we're supposed to be, but I think it's a call to ruthlessly eliminate sin in our lives. Just as seriously, yeah? This concept of rest. Yeah, we'll come to that in chapter 4. Yeah, chapter 4 develops that a little bit bit more, um, which might fill this out. So we're called to ruthlessly eliminate sin in our lives. As seriously as we take the freedom and the forgiveness offered in Christ, we take just as seriously the holiness of God. Right? It's two sides of the same thing. You can't confess Jesus as Lord and only take the comfort without taking the reverence. These must go hand in hand. As we confess one body, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. All right, other other questions? Yes? Well, in 13, where it says, Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin and deceitfulness. Is that implying that, they, that it's, it knows you're going to sin? And it's just to encourage you that... Not as you're sinning to keep on sinning, but as you go about the day and you have sin in your life, do not let that sin harden you. The callous that you talked about. Is that a kind of saying that we know in your life you're going yeah. to sin? I think that's kind of taken for granted that that's going to happen. But it's, it's saying this happens, but don't justify it as, uh, it happens, no big deal. This is the, my language of ruthlessly eliminate it. It might happen. There's forgiveness for this. You know, we know that you are fallen human beings to kind of import some other stuff, but, but you don't take it lightly. And you, you seek to get rid of it. And it's a communal effort. Hebrews has no notion of a me and God religion. Israel was never about just Moses and God. Right? It wasn't just that he called one person. It was he called a nation, a people. And when we confess one body... We're confessing that we are part of this movement. It's always been designed to be a communal effort. And if we hope to be serious about ruthlessly eliminating sin and holding on to the confession, we do so through community. And I think that community only really happens with vulnerability. A gathering of people does not equal community. A gathering of people in and of itself does not lead to holiness and transformation. A group of people who confess Jesus as King and who are open and honest about the difficulties of that journey along the way, now that starts to open up growth and healing. 
That's part of that piece of ruthlessly eliminating sin. Who else? Yeah? I might say uh, deceitfulness of sin, I'd say it's stronger. I'd say it's a lie. Yeah. Um, don't believe the lie. Yeah. And I think that's what the encouragement is. And it's, it is, because it's, it so permeates our culture. And all kinds of, of lies, whether, you know, my example of, of lust, it'll satisfy you. Never. Right? Um, or the lie that this life is all about you. Right? The narcissism. How many narcissists are happy? <laughs> Not for long. But yet, that's what we're told over and over. It's about you. No. We confess Jesus as Lord who is perfected through His sacrificial love. Life is about following this pioneer, which means it's not all about me. Yeah? Something that really helped me from our earlier class was thinking of uh, sin not so much as the act that is the fruit of sin, but sin is a power Mm -hmm. that directs your uh, good and right passions in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. The deceitfulness of sin is keeping you in that power until you think it's natural. And all you see is just the results of it, which we have concretely believed in as sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to pull it out by the roots, right? It's, it's, it is a, um, it's like a, a cancer or something that, that invades and permeates and the actions flow from that. Yeah, sin is power. Um, that's very much Pauline kind of way of, of looking at stuff. Who else? Got a few more minutes? All right, I don't mean to... Uh, Randall? Let, let, let me... Yeah. By the way, that whole uh, uh, pedicure analogy went over my head. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, um, I've never had it, but uh, yeah. yeah. My wife's got nice feet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is Luke Timothy Johnson. In the, in the very uh, first verse there, the, the word where he says that Jesus is the apostle and the high priest. It's the only time in Scripture in the New Testament that Jesus is called apostle, apostles. And the, what, well, I think, I think this is Luke 10. I've, read, I've been reading a bunch of stuff. So anyway, but the idea there, and I don't think it's lost on this audience, the apostle is a messenger from God to, to us. And the high priest is an advocate for us to God. So what you have is you have the picture of the apostle coming from God face to face, protos, in front of you, looking at you. And then you have the idea of the prophet representing you, looking to God. And I don't think that was lost on this on this uh, group of people. Mm-hmm. At verse 14, the sharing. Mm-hmm. The New Living Translation, I was struck this week, says, we will be sharing in all things that belong to Christ. So we, we really are brothers. Yeah. All the things he inherited because of his obedience, we get to share in. And that's a tremendous it is. Uh, thing. Yeah. So my uh, maybe my homework or going forward would be spend time this week, serious time, thinking about who Christ is in his complexity. He is our brother. He is our high priest. He is the creator and sustainer. And then let your life a confession of those things flow from an understanding of who Christ is. All right. See you all Sunday. We're down in the down in the gym. We'll continue in chapter four. Thank you.